All through the month, we're looking at the way the incarnation, the birth of Jesus the Savior, is the undoing of Eden's ruin. So we've called this sort of brief interlude in our regular Sunday schedule, Undoing Eden. And just as we did last week, this week we're in two separate passages. We'll look again at the first verses of Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at the first seven verses, and then we'll flip ahead into the birth narratives in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So while you're looking and getting settled, young Christians, young theologians, let's start with you. Here's what I want you to listen for. What is our sin like? See if you can hear the picture. What is our sin like? And then I want you to listen to see if you can hear what are the two trees? Can you pick them out? Can you explain the two trees that we'll speak of together this morning? This is the gospel of Jesus, the incarnate word, the Savior sent the living gospel sent into the world for our salvation from Genesis and from Matthew. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And from Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. O Savior, O Emmanuel, show us once again how you save us from our sin and make us glad without limit to know that though we try to cover our shame, 
You do not put us away in our shame. Instead, you redeem us and cleanse us and clothe us in your righteousness. Perfectly presentable as your bride and as the Father's children. Make us glad with this gospel this morning. We ask all of these things with love and thanksgiving. Amen. Would you be seated? Aside from the biblical writers themselves, probably no one writes the effects of incarnation better than C.S. Lewis. Lewis wrote incarnation as a thaw interrupting a winter that had lasted far too long. It shows up in a prophecy Mr. Beaver recites to the children in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. When he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And in the story, when Aslan enters the world of Narnia, the white witch's spell of winter is broken. In this scene from the book, the witch and her dwarf and Edmund, her prisoner, are traveling by foot because they're no longer able to use the witch's sleigh. Every moment, the patches of green grew bigger and the patches of snow grew smaller. Every moment, more and more of the trees shook off their robes of snow. Soon, wherever you looked, instead of white shapes, you saw the dark green of fir trees or the black, prickly branches of bare oaks and beeches and elms. Then the mist turned from white to gold and presently cleared away altogether. Shafts of delicious sunlight struck down onto the forest floor, and overhead you could see blue sky between the treetops. This is no thaw, said the dwarf, suddenly stopping. This is spring. Your winter has been destroyed. This is Aslan's doing. I've often thought, Texans can't understand the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. You have no snow. You have no winter. Where I grew up, winter lasted from Halloween to Easter. Some years, it lasted a full six months. Half the calendar buried under blizzards and snowdrifts and single-digit temperatures. And the best day of the year was the morning in the late spring that we looked out the window and saw that the snow had melted back enough that the sidewalks and the streets were clear and dry and we could wear shoes to school instead of snow boots. And no hats and no gloves It was like a rebirth. It was like coming to life again. 
The incarnation is the breaking of sins. Long, icy hold on everything. The incarnation is important and it's worth celebrating for an entire month. Capped off by a festival day at the end filled with gifts and food and toasting and the singing of carols. It's worth celebrating every day if you can hold on to it. Because God's taking flesh, the recreating Word of God, being born as a Jewish baby boy, is like the coming of spring. It's the death of our winter of sin. So here's the oppressive winter we created for ourselves and continued to spread. The man and the woman in the garden ate of the tree in the middle of the garden, the one that they weren't to eat from. The best way to think of the tree is as a sacrament. The tree was a physical sermon. It proclaimed the good news in concrete terms. So every day that the man and the woman saw the tree, the gospel was being preached to them. You are not God. You don't judge good and evil. He does, but He loves you. And He'll give you all things that will allow you to enjoy His goodness. He'll give you all things so that with Him you can despise what is truly evil. With the tree they weren't supposed to eat, God was shaping their hearts just as He always shapes our hearts with His gospel. Only the one whose being is the source of what is good in the world can eat of the tree. The man and the woman, they were good, but remember, it was an inherited goodness. It didn't start with them. It didn't originate from them. And only the one whose being is perfectly opposed to evil can eat the tree. The man and the woman hadn't committed any evil yet, but they hadn't resisted evil through their God yet either. But the man and the woman were envious, and they accused God of not being good to them. How could He be truly good and withhold this one thing? And they ate the fruit, and the opposite of what they had hoped happened. When they ate, they were moved worlds away from His goodness. Not from His love and His mercy and His compassion, but the essence of His being, the quality that recognizes what's truly good and longs for what's truly good. When they ate, what they knew from then on was evil and its ways, starting with hiding from God, And covering their shame, and not very convincingly at that. And passing blame. And the winter came. I was talking to my dad on the phone this week. And he was remembering for me the winter that I was born. I was born in Great Falls, Montana, of all places. You think it's been cold here this week. On Wednesday morning of this week, I went into the backyard at 5 o'clock in the morning to work out. It was 25 degrees. 
That's cold, but that's not Montana cold. The winter that I was born, my parents had to scrape ice off the kitchen walls inside their apartment. And that's the winter of our sin. It's that drastic. You can't shut it out. In fact, the winter of our sin brought down in Genesis 3 is so all-encompassing and consuming that by the time we get to chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, the people had become such foreigners to God's goodness and had married themselves so thoroughly to evil that a flood is sent to empty creation, but even the flood didn't fix it. Because the jumble of good and evil boarded the ark and lived in the heart of Noah and his family. Something else had to be done to break the winter. And so a birth takes place. Not just any birth, but one that resets the whole of creation. And especially the way people live in the creation now. Living toward God instead of away from Him through this birth. By the way, a birth isn't enough. It has to be a birth that does something. So the birth is the subject of celebration because it's the beginning of the end. But there is something that this birth is headed toward. And the trajectory of it is revealed in the angel's dream instructions to Joseph. The angel says... You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Name him Saving One, the angel says. Name him the one who saves. And at the end of the passage, Joseph does exactly as he's told. And the child is given the name appointed for him. There's a lot of story just in the anticipation of that name. The child has to live up to his name. He's fully expected to live up to his divinely given name. I remember when we were expecting one of our children, we were keeping the names we'd chosen quiet. We kept them to ourselves and most of our family was upset. Why the freeze out? So we were with a family member on one occasion who was pressing us to divulge the names. And it was relentless. I can't believe you won't tell me the names you've chosen. Why won't you tell me the names? And so finally I'd had enough. And I couldn't take any more. So I said, fine, you want to go against our wishes? I'll tell you the names. If it's a girl... And I had to think fast. I had to come up with something good to make the point. If it's a girl, and I remember the name of a character in a Flannery O'Connor story. If it's a girl, we're going to name her June Star. June Star, that's awful. And that's why we're not telling you our names. Because you don't get a vote. It isn't up to you what the child is named. And God doesn't leave the naming of His Messiah to anyone else either. He must have a very particular name. Jesus. 
His name must speak to His life and His work. One who saves. He must do what His name says He will do. And His name actually sends us hurtling forward from the beginning of His life to the very end of it, to His saving act. His name drives us to and deposits us at His cross. And maybe it's not just His name that does this. Maybe there's more in the story that suggests it. Maybe it's also the inhospitality of a manger for a baby that reminds us of the inhospitality of a cross for a king. And maybe the rough wood of the one is supposed to make us think of the rougher wood of the other. And maybe the sharp stalks of hay poking his tender infant flesh are the precursors to nails and spear. But this child was born into the world not to be lifted up in his mother's arms so much as to be lifted up on his heavenly father's cross. That was the plan from the beginning. The cross isn't mentioned at all in the birth narratives, but its shadow reaches all the way from Good Friday back into Christmas morning. The shadow of the cross hangs over the manger and it reaches further back than that. It reaches all the way back to the prophets. And it reaches further back than that even. It stretches all the way back to Genesis 3. As soon as Eve takes the first sloppy bite and Adam slurps after her. Why is it that Christians love the cross so much? Isn't that off? Isn't that morbid and gloomy? Is it because Christians love severity? Why do we love the cross so much? It's because God has loved us with the cross. We love it because He has loved us with it. The terrible cross is the sweetest kiss God has ever touched to His people. Because on it our sins died. And on it God's rightful judgment died. And on it our errant hearts that want to make us our own gods died. And on the cross, in the dying of the full-grown infant of salvation, God got His people back and we got our God back. I haven't followed it closely, but I caught glimpses of Amanda Knox's trial in Italy. Knox is the American student who was accused and now convicted of killing her roommate. And one day I I was watching and I was amazed to see in a shot of the courtroom that there was a very large, very obvious crucifix. The kind you'd see hanging over the altar in a cathedral. But this one was hanging on the wall behind the bench. Being a Catholic country, it makes sense that there would be a crucifix hanging in an Italian courtroom. But I couldn't help thinking, what if we took the cross seriously? 
What if we fell in love again with the way God loves us in the cross of Jesus? What if we really believed the relentless cross of Jesus turns everything we settle for inside out? If we believed that, then there would be whole seasons where courtrooms sat empty. There'd be nothing to try. If we believed that, students wouldn't be accused of capital crimes and have to hire defense attorneys to save their lives. If we believed the cross the way we're supposed to believe the cross, our homes would be peaceful. And husbands and wives and children, roommates, friends, wouldn't be people to resent and to squeeze and force through our routines and schedules. They would be people to minister to and we wouldn't do our work for a paycheck or out of duty. We'd do it out of love and we'd unlearn selfishness that is capable of frightful depth, killing even. And we'd replace that selfishness with service that embodies the gospel, a service that's willing to die for another from love for glory, but that's exactly what the cross is given to do in us. Because one tree was our downfall, another tree had to be planted for our rising. Because the tree of good and evil was our judgment, the cross had to be planted as the tree of our forgiveness. Because the tree in the garden, which would have been life to us if we had believed, became the tree of death to us. The tree of death with a Savior tangled in its branches had to become the tree of life for us. The incarnation is intent on giving to us that tree That tree takes good and evil out of our hands and puts them back under God's rule where they belong. That tree gives us shalom, the biblical understanding of peace, which is not the absence of conflict. Shalom is everything put in its right place, everything put in its order under God's goodness and loving rule. That tree breaks our endless winter. And here's what it all means. We don't have to steal fruit anymore. The good news is, we don't have to steal fruit anymore. Every time we chase folly instead of wisdom, every time we choose foolishness over wisdom, We are stealing fruit. And every time we listen to the word of man over the word of God, we're stealing fruit. And every time we make the church about us, and every time we make worship for me or our relationships about worshiping self rather than living the gospel together, and every time we try to make ourselves God, Every time we try to make ourselves our own supreme judges, instead of believing 
that God judges perfectly. He's even able to judge with mercy and forgiveness and compassion and love. And every time we build strongholds and fortresses around our cherished sins, and every time we ask forgiveness without asking for God's recreation to follow it, and every time we refuse to repent, but we don't hesitate to cover ourselves with fig leaves, and every time we try to keep up an image instead of pursuing sanctification, that is the image of Christ being worked and worked and worked into us. With each of these... We're stealing fruit. And the smothering weight of our winter presses down on us. But because Jesus is the ornament of love, hanged from the tree of salvation, we don't have to steal fruit anymore. By the cross, a new promise is given, and the promise is this. Jesus will grow fruit in you. You are the fruit of God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's love, God's reconciliation. Jesus came to bear the fruit that Adam did not. And He came to bear that fruit where Adam should have. In you. So Jesus came to fill your hearts with it. And He came to fill your minds with it. And your mouths with it. He came to fill your work with it and your play with it and your relationships with it. But none of it comes except through His cross. We desperately need the cross. This little baby who was born and placed in a manger was given flesh to hang it from the cross. For all of these reasons, the cross shows me the bleakness of my winter. The expanse of it. The deadness of it. And how... Nothing can grow in my winter. And the cross begins the thaw. Makes me want something new by God's love. And the cross shows me the spring of sanctification. The beauty of Christ's own righteousness. Which he wants to work and grow in me. And the cross is our shelter against our own bitter cold. It calls us to repentance. Come and repent. Come and disown your sin. Reject and mourn over your sin under the safety of this sacrifice. And the cross is our assurance that the warmth of God's love will not leave us to be lost in the Siberia of sin. If you want to feel your worship, public worship, private worship, family worship, Filled up. If you want to feel the joy and the peace and the gratitude and the sheer awe of Christmas again. If you want to experience the intrusion of the incarnation into your own broken living. Then let your thoughts and your attention and your emotions and your desires And your worship, center on, be fixed on the cross. Even in the season where we're contemplating the manger. In other words, our prayers should sound something like this. 
What will your cross do in me? For what fruit in me, in us, was your hanging tree planted? Break the winter in me. Break the tundra of me with the spring of your cross. Skeptics, if God is expecting you to get your life straight, to get it put together and cleaned up and presentable and in order before He loves you, then you should not believe Him and you should not worship Him. Because you'll never make it. And there's something deep within you that knows that. That's why you... Shut God out and keep Him at a distance. You know you're not able to put your life together like that. But if He's put His Son on a cross to die for your sin and your guilt and your death, if He put His Son on a cross to make you something new in Himself, then you should believe Him and you should Worship Him. If He's loved sinners like you with a cross, then you should be His. And this Christmas, you should be asking, was His cross for me? Could His cross really be for me? Lately, I've been reading slowly through a book of essays by the novelist Marilyn Robinson. Robinson is way over my head. I'm not sure I understand anything she's saying. But it's worth it to get lost in the middle of the book because every once in a while there are these flashes of brilliance, just glimmers of radiance. In the introduction, she wrote a short paragraph that knocked the wind out of me. In the paragraph, which I'll read to you, Robinson is lamenting what our culture and world have become. So she mounts this protest. I want to overhear passionate arguments about what we are and what we're doing and what we ought to do. I want to feel that art is an utterance made in good faith by one human being to another. I want to believe there are geniuses scheming To astonish the rest of us just for the pleasure of it. I miss civilization and I want it back. I miss Christianity. Not the play versions of it, but lives redeemed and redirected. So visible you can see it as you look at those lives. I miss the church. Not a loose grouping of spectators who stumble through worship services together one, two Sundays a month provided there's nothing better going on that particular Sunday. But a gathering of people who have to worship together because they're being recreated in Christ. And I miss the mystery of the incarnation. 
Not the nauseating sentimentality of Christmas, but the staggering, world-ending, world-igniting work of the Word made flesh for us. I miss it. And I want it back. And it's been given. Because God in His genius schemed from love to astonish us with the cross just for the pleasure of it. Just for His pleasure and our pleasure after Him. Just for the pleasure that is eternal and fruit-heavy and winterless. Spring has come. Amen. We miss these things, oh Lord, we've given them away. We've squandered them away with foolishness and stupidity and unbelief and black-heartedness and the familiarity of our own private hellish winter. And we want them back. And they're ours through the cross. Help us to love the cross because of the way you love us with it. Fill up our worship, fill up our joy, and allow us to spend our ravishing and great inheritance as we have all the benefits of your sacrifice breaking the back and the neck of our winter and bringing us into the spring of your love in its full radiant bloom. More of this, less of the other. That's what we want. By your spirit and in your gospel, give us these. And we will give you thanks. We ask in the name of Jesus, the incarnate, crucified, risen, ascendant Savior, the Savior who will return and for whom we look. Amen.